time this guy walked up and, and said, hey, listen, you know, here's my card. I, uh, you know, I basically book musicians and entertainers in um, hotels, mostly in Asia. If you ever fancy doing that, and cruise ships, he did cruise ships too. He's like, if you ever fancy doing that, give me a call. I couldn't tell whether it was related to my competence or whether it was style or fit. It was extremely humbling to be fired. Sanjay Poonin grew up lower middle class in India and pushed past rejection to become one of the most respected executives in Silicon Valley, now Chief Operating Officer at VMware. Jay Simons' detour before law school took him playing piano across Asia and inspired him to ditch law for tech, where today he's president at one of its hottest young companies. For most of us, the path to success isn't going to be a straight line, but those who make it learn a lot of lessons you can't capture on a resume. So what qualities separate the best from the average? I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. This week, hear from two executives who made their way to the top of their companies in completely different ways. First, Sanjay Poonin. Uh, thanks, John. I'm now Chief Operating Officer of VMware. I was recently promoted to that job, and I've been at the company three and a half years. Prior to that, I ran the end-user computing product division, and prior to that, most of my life I spent at a small software company called SAP. <laughs> yeah, SAP, um, huge. So we, VMware, we um, build infrastructure software that powers what's, for those who don't know IT, what's called data centers of the world. Mm -hmm. And typically data centers now are a critical component of cloud computing. And we are the backbone that powers that. That's where we, businesses keep all their information. Exactly, and we make it secure, virtualized. In other words, you can do more in software, which saves cost, saves complexity, and also keeps the planet green, because it reduces energy. We've also expanded our view uh, beyond just the data center and cloud computing world into end-user computing, where we today are now um, the digital workplace. Uh, we uh, secure mobile devices. We acquired AirWatch, a successful acquisition. So everything we do is about infrastructure for the mobile cloud era. I just want to look this up. Um, you might know it off the top of your head, but you know the market value market of, cap. Yes. Uh, of VMware, it's around $33 billion. It's gone, gone, gone up 40% this year, roughly. <laughs> we like that. You would know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big company. Um, and you are chief operating officer. That's typically the number two position, making sure the people are moving in the right direction, executing on the plan that leadership has set out. How did you get there? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the life journey um, has been just one where I've sought to be hardworking, I came here as a immigrant to the U.S. and what age? Uh, I was 18 when I came here. Okay, um, and I wasn't actually planning to come. I grew up in Bangalore, India, and um, I was going to go to IIT, which was a technical institute, sort of the MIT right, that's in the India, big, yeah. where most engineers go to school. And my uncle, who lives in Boston, suggested, uh, "Why don't you apply to a couple of schools also in the U.S. that are offering scholarships to international students?" So I applied to three schools. I applied to MIT, and I got rejected. Mm -hmm. I applied to Caltech, and I got rejected. And not that because it was third in the list, but it was also among the, I applied to Dartmouth College. That's a good school. And it's a good school. Ivy League, Computer right? science, and I'd never heard of it, never been to Hanover, New Hampshire. I got accepted there and was very blessed to have a scholarship. So I landed in Logan Airport, 50 bucks in my pocket, a scholarship to Dartmouth. And I think for the first six months, regretted coming in because of the cold. I mean, it's <laughs> a lot colder in Hanover, New Hampshire than Bangalore, India. But as I got adjusted to uh, the people, the culture was also a huge culture shock. 
uh, for people who don't know, and Dartmouth, I mean, it's basically, if you've seen the movie Animal House, that's Dartmouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, it can be a pretty raucous fraternity, at least the time I was there. But, so rewind though, like, what, what are you coming to America with? Uh, did you come from a family of means? Had you traveled around the world? Not at all. Were you steeped in the language? I mean, of course, in India, because of the British influence in India, many people speak English. So I did grow up speaking English. But we were middle class, you know, lower to middle class in India. So by American standards, poor. I mm. could not have come here if it wasn't for a scholarship. Uh, I didn't have enough money to afford a, a winter jacket. I thought I'd just put more layers on and I'd be warm. <laughs> Someone said, hey, why don't you save us from the money you're earning from your uh, dining hall job and buy a winter jacket? So I think, you know, the thing that was instilled in me from a very early age by my mother, who is really my hero, is hard work. Mm. She's the oldest of nine uh, children and worked extremely hard. Um, and they were from a poor family. But education came uh, from working hard. And of course, you have some God-given talents, but, you know, just being smart without hard work doesn't often just the recipe for success. So we were instilled, live with little, be content with what you have, and work hard. And I came to this country, you know, feeling like if I worked hard, there might be an opportunity. And, you know, that's kind of what's worked out. What did you want to be? Um, I had a, you know, in India, I joke about this, typically the roads divide uh, when you get to 12th standard, as we used to call it, a 12th grade here, and you either become a doctor or an engineer, okay, <laughs> depending where. I had more of the math gene. Of course, now the world is diversified to more jobs, even in India. Um, but I liked engineering, I liked math, I liked computer science, and I ended up studying that in college. Um, I did a double major in computer science and engineering, and um, you know, took almost a year off between my third and fourth year, junior and senior year, and worked at Microsoft in, 19, in 1990. It was very, Microsoft, I think, only had 1,500 or 2,000 employees. Very early on, Windows 3 had just come out. I went back to college, uh, got my degree, and then came out to Silicon Valley to work at Apple. Wow. So you were at Apple. This is post-Steve Jobs Apple. because This was the wilderness years of Steve Jobs. Yeah. He'd been fired. He was doing Next at the time. And we were trying to build an operating system that was going to be the next generation operating system, take on Windows NT. It was a division of Apple called the Pink uh, team that built what became spun out as Talligent. And it was a failure. I mean, I spent four years with incredibly smart engineers. It was a joint venture of IBM. But I learned a lot in my first job out of college in a venture that was going nowhere. At what point did you decide, I'm staying in America, I'm staying in technology, Silicon Valley is the place I want to be? I think, I mean, listen, I was just following a little bit of what I'd heard and read and companies I admired. But I got to tell you, you know, at age 22, I wasn't sure. Hmm. I mean, it was all for me just going year by year. You know, I knew nobody there. Um, I moved in with a couple of roommates and, you know, I certainly liked technology and engineering and computer science and a lot of software was happening there. Um, and quickly over three or four years, I began to really like what the Silicon Valley had to offer. But I couldn't tell you that I had a game plan either at age 18 or at age 22. Hmm. When does managing people start to come into the picture? I, I think when I was, you know, probably 25, um, I remember as an engineer, um, I did my first demo uh, to an audience and some of the product marketing people came to me and said, wow, that was an incredible demo that you did and you have a good gift to communicate. Why are you an engineer? Maybe you should be a product <laughs> manager. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, I like being an engineer. 
Um, and as Talagent was going through its sort of, you know, crisis of where it was going to go, um, my uncle again said, hey, you may want to think about going to business school. So again, this is just a blessing of life. I applied to a bunch of different business schools. I got rejected every one of them. And then very, at the last stage, got, open, got admitted to Harvard Business School. And it was probably like, you know, well, this must be a now, blessing. Doesn't, yeah, now wait it a minute. It, exactly. Like, you know, this is not something I expected. You get rejected by Every school. except Harvard. I mean, it, this, 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 this tells you that there is no a science to the way in which college admissions work. I mean, sometimes you get the, the blessing end of it sometimes. So I just tell students, don't be discouraged. Uh, if you don't get into places you want to. So I got waitlisted in the last round, went in to do my interview, they liked me, and I ended up going to Harvard Business School for two years. Do you think the uh, interview put you over the top? Could be, could well be. I think that, I don't say? tend to do, do well remember? in standardized tests. I'm okay. not good at standardized tests. My ACT scores were okay, certainly not good in English. I was better in math. I think the standardized tests, the GMATs, I probably didn't do well. I can't remember my scores now. But I tend to interview probably better than I do a standardized test. Do you remember what um, you said? Or what they asked I think you? I think they were intrigued by the fact that here's an Indian immigrant, and that remember in '95, it was very early in, way, in the ways in which the global economy was going to leverage technology. Right. Um, and I had a vision that, you know, Indian engineering that was used in India could help the global economy here, because there was a huge supply of Indian engineers coming out of, and the whole idea was to leverage what I'd learned here with uh, engineering potential that could happen in India, and they liked that. Yeah, 20 years ago, that was a novel idea. Now it seems obvious. Yeah, and you know, of course, all the offshore SI firms, whether it's Wipro or Infosys, are built on that idea. As he moved into the management phase of his career, Poonin began developing his own approach to being the boss. It had its roots in his religious faith. But I think what I began to learn coming out of Harvard Business School tapped into that gene um, that you know I think is a little bit of a God-given gift to communicate and manage people. Uh, but a good part of managing people has been my own principle of, you know, you, you lead by being a servant leader. Uh, in other words, you're not trying to be the smartest person in the room, the person who rules by dictate. You're trying to serve people, and as you serve people, you're trying to get the best out of them. Mm. And of course, there's been a lot written about that since then, but that's how I've sought to live, um, you know, my, my life and my management career, whether it's from managing two people, to managing you know, a significant part of the 20,000 people of VMware today. Now, where did you get that idea of certain leadership? I think a good part was from my, my, my home, where I watched my dad, you know, some of the things that I uh, read biblically and things of that kind. But beyond just the religious aspect of what I saw, um, I just found that as you treated people like you want to be treated, mm. you know, uh, do unto others as you want to be done. But also, you know, simple things that I would never want to hire somebody that I mean, I one day want to work for, things right. of that kind. Yeah. And it inverts the pyramid. Typically, people think of a pyramid where at the top of the pyramid is the CEO, the C-level people, and you know, stuff flows downhill, except it's another word that starts with S, <laughs> which I won't repeat on your show. But when you invert the pyramid to be the opposite and say, listen, I'm actually at the bottom of the pyramid, and if you, let's say in sales, the account executive, or you, the engineer, are close to the customer, my job is to take every obstacle out of the way to help you be successful. I mean, people are going to go the extra mile to, to serve you. Or to, to, you know, the, you're almost laying down your life for them. Um, you get a lot more done. And I find that that service-driven form of leadership is so much more satisfying, not just to the employee, but it's actually satisfying to you because, I mean, at some point in time, you realize it's not about you. It's about the team that you have. And building a world-class team means that you've got to hire people often better than you. 
This is interesting because your father's a Christian pastor, who I've heard. Um, we attended the same church in Silicon Valley. My father's a Christian pastor. And one of the things I found in Silicon Valley is that people think that Silicon Valley is sort of atheistic or ag agnostic. But really, there's a lot of faith <laughs> going on in Silicon Valley. It's very humanistic, but I mean, almost everybody, it seems, who shows up in Silicon Valley has a dream and a belief against odds and often against evidence that it can get done. But it's not the sort of belief system that's, um, that's friendly to uh, traditional ideas of religion. Have you found a culture clash in uh, operating as an executive in Silicon Valley, either with the idea of servant leadership or just living life the way you do? I would say today, I mean, even if you look at modern books that are written about management, I think the idea of servant leadership and serving uh, is becoming a lot more relevant people, you know, I think who are that type of leaders, whether they have my religious faith or not. I think Satya Nadella manages Microsoft. I've seen that in him. John Thompson, chairman of Microsoft, I admire him. He, he was my boss at Symantec, mm -hmm. uh, both Bill McDermott, my boss at SAP. So there's elements of this that go beyond just faith. Uh, from my own personal experience, uh, I'm public and, and you know about my faith, but I don't make that certainly ever a tool to proselytize. Mm -hmm. I don't want everyone to feel like just because they have a similar faith, they have uh, in with me. I want to live by values. Uh, irrespective of what faith you are and whether you have a faith or not, values transcend uh, any type of religion. And it means how you treat people, um, how you want to be treated. Um, there should be no discrimination ever. And in essence, when you respect people and you want to seek the best out of them, I think there's true joy. I mean, there's a quote that I remember uh, by a freedom fighter uh, in India named Rabindranath Tagore who said something like this. It's a beautiful poem. I have it on my desk and I say it at many of my all hands. Uh, he, he said something like this. I went to bed and dreamt that life was joy. I woke up and realized that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. And I think that that truly is, since it was written during the time of the freedom movement in India, um, and I think that that taps into the true essence of what a next generation leader is, which is you find joy out of serving people. And it's not like you're a, you're a doormat that people can you know, walk over. I mean, people know me. I'm aggressive. I'm a tough negotiator. I'm going to stand up for what's right, but I'm also going to try and get the best deal for us as a company and get past no, which we started off this conversation around. But you can do it by being a nice person. And I think in the Silicon Valley today, and much of the world, you find a lot of, find a lot of people who are smart, find a lot of people hardworking. You rarely find people who are also humble. Mm. And I, I would, you know, I think that there's a, uh, a great story to be had of people who can combine smart, hardworking, and being humble. It doesn't mean you're going to end up last in life. For Sanjay, the hard times resulted in certain benefits, specifically resilience. A couple of tough times in particular left a mark. I think there's probably two or three, John, that I would say in my life were defining moments for me. And one goes before my even coming to the U.S. I mean, as a kid, I wasn't the most popular. I wore thick glasses um, and I was bullied. And I realized even through much of my growing up years, you know, those first 10 years of a kid's life, um, especially a lot of time that's, play, that's spent on the playground, um, you develop some thick skin. And the what, thing what's, from, what's the bullying look like at that stage I mean, for you? you're punched. I mean, you know, you're, you're beat up, you're made fun of. I mean, people would, I mean, I used to ride a bicycle, people would 
you know, slash the tires or let the air out of your tires. It's just stuff that made you feel smaller than you are. Right. But I remember every single time I was bullied, I came home and I knew my home was a safe zone. It was secure, my parents loved me. Um, uh, my church was a safe zone. So whatever that security zone, I've concluded that for my kids and certainly for all the kids I have an influence on, especially in those first 10, 12 years, um, irrespective of what they go on, it's not a guarantee that you're gonna be the most popular person in the school. Uh, we have got to make that a safe zone for those years where it's so formative and they're, they're, a lot of their emotions are you know, fragile. Mm. So that was one. Secondly, for me, just coming to a new country and all of its cultural shock and you know, coming at age 18 and just knowing nobody, that for me was just an eye-opener in terms of you know, everything I needed to learn, um, figure out if I was even going to survive in a place that was you know, 8,000, 10,000 miles away from my parents. And that was an incredible learning journey with lots of, of uh, ups and downs. Now, uh, what were, tell me about the ups and downs in there. Was it uh, as basic as making friends? Was it figuring out how to you know, work at your dining hall job and get the school work done? I mean, again, with no insult to Dartmouth, Dartmouth is a primarily white school, okay? Mm -hmm. And most of them are folks who are in the New England area. Right. Um, upper class, wealthy folks from that part of upstate New York, all the way, that golden banana all the way up to. And I just didn't fit that mold. Um, person of color, uh, from a different country. And it's not that they were... And I this mean, is like, this is the 80s. 1987, right? So and people might think, okay, you know, Ivy League school. These days, when people... It's changed a little bit. Pe people think about, okay, there's a decent amount of immigration, especially yeah. in, you know, top-tier schools. But this, in the late 80s, not... Not as much. Exactly. And, you know, I, you know, my, it was breaking into friendship circles. I was different. So whether it was, you know, the right people that I found that were similar to me, um, you know, I made friends with some African-Americans who were very good friends. And we just, we were diverse. We were different. Mm. Uh, some of those friendships with me were, helped me assimilate into a culture that was very different. Some other international students. Uh, but all of that at age 18 is a lot for somebody to go through, um, especially when their support structure, their parents are like eight, ten thousand miles away, right? Yeah. And most often, Indians who come to the U.S. come much later in their 20s. Um, um, for me, coming at 17, 18 uh, was, you know, just sort of, you know, trial by fire. So how did you cope? Because this is back before you could just, I, you uh, know, get online. I go back to what my mom taught me. It didn't matter if you, you were letters? popular or not. There was an email at the time, so I wrote letters. Email was just starting, so I could send an email. But what did I find safety in? The fact that I was good academically and I was going to go back. So, you know, I was a little bit of a nerd. When, you know, I f didn't feel I was going to be the most popular person, I wasn't going to necessarily go to the the frat parties, I was going to basically study. Uh, and then as I got to make friends, some of that sort of, you know, fitting into the culture, the second, third, or fourth year, and by the by senior year, I felt a lot more assimilated into the culture, but that was, the first two years were not easy. Yep. And then you add on top of the weather. I mean, it was just <laughs> cold. I mean, it was, I remember like coming out of the dorms and I just thought my years were going to fall off. Um, so just adjusting to all of that was, a, you know, just enormously growing up experience for me. What traits, character traits, do you think surfaced through some of those hard times? Um, anything that, you know, either from being a kid dealing with the bullying or, um, you know, later on in college dealing with being out of place, different, uh, that you still carry and draw on? 
I think you develop a thick skin, right? Thick skin for the cold, <laughs> I mean, for multiple reasons. One, the weather. Uh, but you start to realize, it, you know, you're, you can't please everybody. If you're trying to be the most popular person, um, there'll be some who have that, you know, um, attraction to, to have lots of friends. And if it's not, you're still going to be okay. Um, and you draw in uh, the things that you learned very early on, which is your security blanket comes from a close circle of family or friends. And listen, everything in life, I have so much more than I deserve, so I consider myself blessed. I've not gone through a huge amount of hardship or pain or suffering or addictions. Uh, so I've had more. And then you begin to just reflect, like you know, I've said, on the blessings that you have, and you're grateful for that, and you build on them. Um, um, and as that evolves, my circle of friends have grown. Um, I've had more now than I deserve. And... Um, you know, life has been good. But I think that those lessons I learned before I was 10, lessons I learned before I was 25, have prepared me to who I am today at age 47. But there's not much that can prepare you for those moments when your career hits a wall. For Sanjay, that happened at Informatica. You hit some roadblocks or speed bumps or whatever metaphor we want to use for, uh, for not smooth passage. Informatica. What happened? Yeah, so I was, um, you know, early 30s there now, about three, four years out of business school. And, um, you, know, you know, I thought doing a good job, type A person, overachiever, um, was the head of marketing, so the chief marketing officer of the company. And That's the good. CEO, in your early 30s, yeah, I was to be good, chief doing marketing well. Officer, it was a $200 million yeah. company at the time. And, you know, I think often when you get to executive levels of a company, your fate uh, is not just a function of your competence, but also your fit with the management team, the CEO, sometimes maybe in the board. And the CEO decided to make a different go a different direction, wanted a different CMO. Um, I couldn't tell whether it was related to my competence or whether it was style or fit. It was extremely humbling to be fired. Um, and it was my first job that um, pretty much, you know, I had a dinner conversation. It was very clear the dinner conversation that that was the end of that particular journey. I remember going back to India, I was single at the time, um, and uh, telling my parents, I think this, this job is done, and I think I'm gonna get fired when I get back. And it worked out that way, and I didn't have something I was gonna go to next. Um, so I spent the next six months, um, you know, doing what I need to do, which is get in shape. I put on some weight, and I needed to exercise a little bit more, and fix my eating habits, and... Um, was that deliberate? I, I mean, what, what was your process? Because, I mean, people often go through the stages of grief when something oh, unexpected yeah. It was like all there. That. I mean, it's anger. It's, you know, it's all the pieces of it. But you come back and say, listen, I mean, gosh, if I think getting fired as an executive of this company is the worst thing, let me think about many others who've had worse than me. So, um, you know, my mom used to say, listen, if you compare yourself to people who have more than you, you're going to feel discontent. If you compare yourself to people who have less than you, you're going to be thankful. And that's what I've sought to do every time I've hit a bump. Um, and I didn't feel it was personal. I mean, I'm actually friends with that CEO of the company now. It's many years later. So I, I, but the initial state, yeah, you are feeling sad and depressed and upset, but you go on long runs or walks, and those are the times when you start to reflect on, um, you know, that disappointment, that too will pass. Um, and um, over the course of the next two years, um, you know, I began to find something. I worked at Symantec. Um, I met the wonderful woman. How did you woman. do that? I mean, you know, in the Silicon Valley, you know, if you're hardworking and you're, you, you will find a job. I mean, I think typically it may not be exactly what you want, uh, 
you may have to compromise a little bit on exactly, and I had to start with something that wasn't exactly what I'd wanted, but it was a path into a company I liked in infrastructure software. Um, so was it people who you had worked with before? I mean, it was, was a recruiter it? who basically called oh. me and said, this might be something you're interested in. It wasn't exactly what I liked, but I liked the company. And I'd always been one where if the company had a good brand and it was a place I could learn, I'd be flexible about the starting role. Mm. And that's what ended up happening. I ended up doing more in, uh, there. And you know, through the course of the end of that journey, I met the wonderful woman I'm now married to. So I just think that there are other things that had to happen in my life that that firing took care of. I got healthier as a person, uh, body-wise, and um, you know, met somebody who I'm now wonderfully married to with three kids. So I just think that you know, when you look through your down spots in life, my own life journey has been the valleys of my life have taught me a lot more than the peaks. I've had peaks, I'm very happy for them and blessed to have them, but the valleys that I've gone through, we've just you know, picked two or three of them, there are many other valleys, um, that have taught me something that I wouldn't be who I am today if it weren't for those valleys. Do you have a process for what you do in a valley time? Because, I mean, even during our conversation, I'm noticing it's really, you don't, you don't like to dwell in negativity. You, I mean, we're skimming I, off it and you're, you're, you're telling me where it pointed you to. And I'm trying to pull out for the yeah. people who might be stuck in that spot, yeah. you know, with their tire spinning and not know how yeah. to get out. How, do you, how did you get out of that? How did you develop that muscle, if that's what it is, that helps you lift out of that spot? Um, is there a process that you go through? What? I mean, there's a personal aspect of it which is deep to my spiritual being, which is prayer. And um, I, you know, when that happens, there's a lot of self-reflection and time which you just need to be on your own. And whatever you're, for me personally, it's prayer and faith, and for others it might be different. But that, that, that deep, um, you know, submission of just understanding this is out of my control, uh, and I'm going to reflect or pray on this uh, has been the starting point of every aspect of it. Um, you know, secondly, when you are doing activity um, that lets you, you know, serve other people, I found it to be extremely refreshing um, to not just sort of sit in a, you know, in a morose space where you're brooding, but to get out there and serve some other community that needs help. So outside of work? Yeah, completely out of work. I mean, my church happens to do a lot of service in the community, but whether it's that or any other, other capacity, I believe that a service-oriented nature takes the, takes the uh, you know, focus away from yourself and your own aspects of what you might be going through in a lull and, and serving other people. Like I said in that poem, there's true joy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the second thing that's helped me tremendously. And then somehow or the other, whether it's your family or your closest friends, um, go and reach out to that, that inner circle you know, and you know, hopefully everyone listening to this has at least one other person that they can consider a friend. And I was fortunate. There wasn't a large circle. There was a few people, two or three of them were my brothers and then a few other friends whom I could just vent, pour out you know, my frustrations or concerns. Tell me about uh, this inner circle, though. What's the function of it? Is it, uh, is it people who say only positive things? Not at is all. it people? Tell me, what distinguishes the inner circle from just friends or from admirers? Or I mean, for one, they, they're not caught up with any of the... They couldn't care less that I went to Harvard Business School that I'm an executive. <laughs> they love me for who I am. So, you know, I, I'm just an ordinary brother to them or a close friend. So we'd play basketball a lot or we'd, you know, 
go out to, to meals or uh, do stuff together. I mean, it, it just, at the end of the day, it became people who, at the core of it, loved you and you felt completely secure knowing that you could share with them frustrations or, uh, and vice versa, help them. And um, in some cases, some of them were also going through things that were potentially worse than I was going through. Mm. And, um, um, you know, being able to tap into that inner circle. So I found it to be enormously helpful. And sometimes, you know, a new friend came into that inner circle. Typically for me, that inner circle started off with my three brothers who were, you know, were, I'm the oldest of four boys. And we've been very close as a family. But for folks who don't have a very close family, um, you know, I think there are certain friends that you can call on. And, you know, that's the aspect of a friendship that will stay, through, stay with you through thick and thin. Now, as a C-level executive at a $33 billion company, Poonin places a particular premium on bad news. If it's out there, he wants to hear it. I think, I mean, I'll start now pulling right into the work situation. I have sought to be in a place where the people who work for me or the people who work my peers or the people who work above me, call that your 360, feel very comfortable in giving you feedback, often brutal feedback, and I seek it. Um, now, of course, if the feedback was always like negative, 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 you'd probably at some point, may, you know, it'd be hard to, but, you know, typically I find in the way in which I practice feedback to other people, I start with three positives of what they're doing and one constructive. Mm. And when you're, when you're constructive is balanced with, hey, here's two or three things you're doing that's outstanding, but here's one piece that you can improve. People, you know, like that. They act on it. And uh, whether other people are going to give me three constructors and one positive, it doesn't matter. The point is I welcome that in my circle and develop a thick skin where even if it's critique that I'm initially uncomfortable with, I'm going to just take it in and listen to it. Um, and in the workplace, that's often tough because most often as you grow as an executive, people feel intimidated to give an executive feedback. Yeah. And I think it's really important uh, for us executives to create a, a place, a safe place where anyone in the organization some of them, sometimes it has to be anonymous because they don't feel comfortable doing this. But I, we have an internal at VMware where we have something called a voice of VMware where everybody in the organization, in fact, I insist in my organization that we get 100% participation if we can because I want to hear from every single person. And it's all anonymous. And that gives me a pulse check. I read every single line of feedback that's qualitative. Of course, the quantitative numbers also are helpful. Mm -hmm. And that's helped us keep our place to be one of the best places to work. VMware has been ranked now one of the top I just read this morning one of the top five places to work for parents and top 25 places to work in you know, all and top 10 among tech. Um, and that's because we try to keep our pulse into the feedback of employees. What's some of the best bad news that anybody's ever brought you? And by that I mean just the most important and perhaps transformative for you either as a leader oh, I'll tell you. or as an operator, something that they saw in the business that you didn't see that allowed you to succeed when you would have failed, anything like that? Well, I'll start one with a more qualitative aspect and then one on a, on a business perspective, which was I think the second part of your question. I do a 360 every, every year for my team. And this year I did one that was a former one. So members of my board, my mm. boss, peers and people underneath me gave me feedback. And you know what was the number one feedback they said? There was positive. Let me start with the constructive one. Okay. You need to be a better listener. And I'd known, I've known this for a while. I tend to probably talk more than I need to, and I need to adapt two years, one month. Mm. Um, I went back to my wife, and I told Kathy, I'd like you to read my 360 review. And she just laughed. <laughs> she said, that's exactly what I, and I knew that. 
And I went back to my coach and said, you know what? The feedback is accurate when your wife agrees with everything that your employees have also said. Your coach, who's your coach? So we had an executive coach who okay. did this 360. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I felt that was the right way to do it. I don't do that every year, but this year I felt it would be good to have a coach who did that objectively. Right. Um, we do that for a number of our key executives and leaders. and. Um, and Pat has one too, so we, we make that a key part to our growth. Pat Gelsinger, the Pat CEO, is my boss and the CEO of the yeah. company. So um, that's good, and that's what I'm gonna work on. So the people who did the 360 know that I'm gonna be working on this in my one-on-ones. I'm trying to ask more questions, listen a lot more than talk, be more like you, the way you're doing this. You know, really. <laughs> um, from a business perspective, you know, when I came to VMware in 2013, um, my group, End User Computing, had the highest attrition, lowest morale, so and people was, were leaving and oh, they were dropped off. Yeah, just not happy. Okay. And it was very clear that um, in the voice of VMware feedback that was coming in, that what this group was asking for was just a leader that would listen to some of the key aspects they were going to do, that they needed to get done, value them as employees, and then paint a strategic vision of where end user computing needed to do. The first part, you know, was easy. I, I just needed to kind of spend a lot more time in town halls and getting to the core of some of the folks who had great ideas. And the vision part, um, I began to hear from them and from customers that we needed to make a big move into mobility. And from that Smart came, the, acquis yeah, and, and that and came from the acquisition of AirWatch okay. that we did six months later. So I made it my mission to take to the board um, a significant acquisition we needed to make. And the best people to help me with the framing of that strategy were some of these key people who were speaking and some of the customers who were telling me VMware needs a vision and mobility. And Vlola, six months later, we announced the biggest acquisition VMware has ever done of AirWatch. Mm -hmm. And it has transformed end user computing since we did that move. Jay Simons is also a top-level executive in business software. He's the president at Atlassian, a company that went public a year ago. It helps teams work more efficiently together. Unlike Sanjay Poonin, Jayden's not trained as an engineer. In fact, before he arrived in San Francisco in the last years of the dot-com boom, he spent years playing piano in hotels across Asia. If you ever thought your weird background couldn't possibly set you up for success, listen to what Jay says has set him apart. Well, I would say probably from, a, from just a DNA perspective, it's, um, it's positivity and and like uh, energy and kind of unbridled enthusiasm. And maybe some of that is, uh, you know, is, is nature and a lot of it would probably be nurtured by like uh, my mom and dad. You know, I think my, my, my mom especially was, um, when I was young, uh, you know, the, the one thing that I sort of learned from her um, or, or kind of learned, uh, learned along the way was was just not to quit so there's there's sort of like an energy around just kind of being relentless and kind of chasing things that um I've, i think i've always just had as you know since i was a kid was there, um, were there things that you wanted to quit where she said no, piano was one of them okay. yeah i mean like it, you know uh, uh i mean I, I when i was like really young i was four or five you know like probably most kids that were that age when they banged on the piano and then i said i want to do this and so, you know, she went and got a piano and found a teacher. And I think on the second lesson, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful now. But, you know, she, she said, well, you're, you're going to do this. Like, you're, you can't quit this. So anyways, like a, a kid, I learned, uh, I think I learned mostly through her and, you know, my dad, like kind of a stick with itness. Mm. And so I kind of, I think I kind of have that. 
And then, uh, you know, I, I think where, where I'm a, a good match for the company, I've been a good match for the, the company that I work in now presently is, you know, I've got a, a background in both sales and marketing. You know, half of my career in technology was in sales, the other half in marketing. Um, so I, I think I've got kind of a, a blend of, you know, of, of um, you know, generating demand on the marketing side and having instincts to sort of focus on closing it. And even though we do that differently than most enterprise software companies, from a skill and experience set, I probably brought, at the time that I joined, uh, a bunch of things that I learned along the way in technology and enterprise software mm -hmm. that I think were, were kind of a, you know, a, a, a good fit for the company and, and what it needed at the time and where it needed to go. And then maybe combine that with, with just sort of high energy and, and optimism. And um, It's not really super powerful. So, so growing up, were you a math and science kid or more of a theater and creative writing kid? Uh, I was I was probably more of a theater and creative writing kid. Uh, I mean, I was I was good at math, uh, but um, I you know I, I oriented more towards liberal liberal arts in college, and you know I've, I've been kind of an avid reader and writer, and uh, you know and then I think music and kind of creativity is sort of a poor, core part of my own personal fabric, and um, so I tend to orient that way. So when did the tech connection happen? Uh, so I grew up in Washington, and, uh, and, and so, you know, as I was growing up, um, began to appreciate Microsoft's influence in right. the Northwest. This is pre-Amazon. Pre-Amazon, and then, you know, I graduated from the University of Washington in 94, and then had uh, spent a bunch of time overseas uh, in the very early formative years of Amazon. And so, sort of my, my, I've always been kind of a dabbler in tech, like we all have our you know, our, our kind of early stories of the first time we were exposed to a computer and, you know, we had computers in the, in the house always. Mm. Um, Why? Uh, you know, I, my, my dad, you know, so my dad was a marine biologist and kind of worked with computers in his job um, pre pretty avidly and so I think was like an early adopter of computers in the home. I, rem I remember the, the um, you know, the first computer I had I think was a um, Texas Instruments, like a TRS-80. TRS-80, yeah. And then we had this thing called... Um, called a K-Pro, I remember vividly, that had like the keyboard that kind of folded up into it. But the, the thing I remember about that is it had this video game um, that was kind of based, it was kind of like a, a precursor to Donkey Kong, hmm. uh, that, that were basically, you were like an O that climbed this maze of ladders made of H's and swinging ropes made of, you know, inverted parentheses. And it was, <laughs> it was the, the cool thing about it is it, it had like this unlimited set of levels, like probably a thousand different levels that were all made of ASCII. Um, anyway, I remember that. It was like, you know, uh, kind of a uh, black screen, like green terminal, you know, green lettering. But anyway, make a long story short, I was always like fortunately kind of exposed to technology and computers uh, kind of growing up. So dabbled always a little bit. Right. Uh, and, and then, you know, when I, I, I went abroad to kind of play piano, uh, I intended to just do it for a year. And then I just had so much fun living overseas and kind of you know, the adventure of like experiment or ex experiencing different cultures and sort of like, you know, I grew up in a really small town, so all of a sudden to, to be transplanted, uh, you know, in a foreign country, well, like was pretty eye-opening for me. I'd never really, tra you know, traveled out of, the, out of the U.S. before then. So how exactly did this happen? Mostly it was serendipity. I, I just, to earn beer money in college, I like would, you know, find a bar to play at or a restaurant to play at and sort of be the guy, you know, kind of like playing songs for people while they ate dinner. And uh, one How much guy, did that pay? Oh man, not much. It was, uh, you know, I think there's like a musicians' union wage, so it was like probably like 25 bucks an hour, 
um, which pretty is good pretty, for college. pretty good. Yeah, yeah, especially doing something that you you love to do. I mean, it was like it was enough to kind of you know you do it on a Friday night or a Saturday night, so you make a couple hundred bucks, and it was kind of it was beer money, but it was like an outlet for it's me. It's a lot of beer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, beer plus, but. Um, but, you know, one guy, you know, one time this guy walked up and, and said, hey, listen, you know, here's my card. I, uh, you know, I basically book musicians and entertainers in um, hotels, mostly in Asia. If you ever fancy doing that, and cruise ships, he did cruise ships too. He's like, if you ever fancy doing that, give me a call. So after I finished undergrad, I thought, like, why not? I'm going to, like, rather than backpack around Europe or sort of just do something, why, why not figure out if I could go play and live somewhere else? And I called him. But you majored in political science and environmental law, was it? Or no, environmental science. Environmental science. Yeah. So I can think of lots of reasons why you wouldn't decide to you know, go to the other side of the world and play piano. Well, I was, at the time, my thought was, I want to go to law school and pursue environmental law. Okay. And so, and I worked actually, uh, I, I had a part-time job through college also at a law firm. And, uh, you know, the, again, again like life is, is, you get these sort of, very important but subtle influences sometimes. And the partner at that law firm said, don't go to law school right away. Like, take some time and just let the last four years marinate a little bit and do something, go somewhere, right, and do something. And because for, for me, because he had gone straight to law school, I think, and just so from personal experience, he was saying, I think that you should just take some time. Like, you, you at the end of that, you, you might still be enthusiastic about law school. It turns out that I wasn't. So um, I, my, my conceit was... I'll go play for six months somewhere and then actually come back and go to law school. And uh, in six months, ended up turning into three and a half years. And over that time... Three and a half years. Yeah, three and a half years that I, I basically played overseas. And during that time, you know, I was sort of dabbling more in technology. I, like, taught myself HTML. Remember, Amazon, like, the, the Amazon was, was then, uh, you know, then really starting to redefine you know, part of that technology landscape in Seattle with Microsoft and, you know, a lot of my friends that were in college, like, were in technology. And so I, over the course of those three and a half years, I just became hyper-tuned into, you know, into the transformative effect of technology. And I had an interest in it. And I was like, actually, I want to I work in technology. And so uh, I came back to the U.S., um, moved to San Francisco in part because you know, I think the adventurous side of living somewhere else in me mm -hmm. um, compelled me not just to go back to Seattle. Huh. And you have I offers thought, to go back to Seattle? No, I mean, I, I came back and, you know, I was like, where would I want to live to find a job? Mm. Um, and rather than apply for a job, let me just, like, pick a spot. And so I knew I wanted to be in technology and I could probably find a job in, at Microsoft or Amazon or somewhere in, in Seattle, but I didn't want to live there and, man, go to Silicon Valley. And so I landed in San Francisco. Okay, so is this a situation where you're coming back with pretty much just a suitcase because you've been traveling around for three and a half years? Suitcase and a fair amount of money saved, <laughs> right? Because, like, playing piano, I mean, playing piano in, in hotels, the one thing that, that, you know, outside of just being able to, be, like, loving what I was doing at the time and having an incredible adventure, because, mm -hmm. you know, I only worked four hours a day. Uh, and, and so I had all this time to kind of read and learn and... You know, it, there wasn't a lot of online, like you would go, I'm, I'm trying to think, it, it, for half that time you could go to like an internet cafe, which began to kind of pop up around different places. But it was still like, you know, this was 95, 96, 97, so it was still like pretty early. Right. I mean, I would communicate with, with my parents still with facts. I would like write a letter and then I would like take it into the, to the hotel and they would fax it to my parents and so I'd get, that's how we communicated. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but I think, you know, the, I forgot what I was going to say. I was like, um, 
Well, I, I was asking where you're living out of the oh, suitcase. Yeah, and, and, and so yeah, I lived in a hotel. Yeah. I mean, I you know the, everything was paid for, like room and board and like food. So oh, really? literally, I had zero expenses, and so, so it was all I ended up saving a lot of money. Net. So I came back and uh, and you know faced at the time what I thought was like pretty exorbitant rent in San Francisco, which uh, oh, yeah. which now you now, know, right. now, now, <laughs> now pales in comparison. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it gave me it gave me kind of a, a little bit of a head start. And it yields benefits today. I mean, whether it's the travel that you might have to do, does, you know, the time that you spend, that's a long time for anybody to be traveling around yeah. without a base. Does it affect how comfortable you are or how you interact with people in uh, oh, different yeah. countries and different locations? Um, did, you, did you pick up languages during that time that you use or, or at least um, a, a sense of how people's cultures might be different totally. and how that might influence the way you approach them? Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think that that was a, you know, it's not really a, a skill, but, you know, I, again, I grew up in a really small town and then all of a sudden to, you know, in Washington State, all of a sudden to land in, you know, in, in Rangoon, Burma, um, you know, Myanmar now it's called, but to, to land there and, and just, you know, to, to be exposed to such a different, Part of the world, and also in that that particular time, and again, like you know, my, my political interests were also being tugged because, you know, I arrived in Burma um, a week before Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who had been under house arrest for six years, was released for the first time, and so it was fascinating to just be to just plop down into a country that all of a sudden like had a couple of defib defibrillator paddles, sort of like you know where everything was electrified. I remember. So how did um, that affect you? Uh, well, one, I felt it, you know, just, and, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know a ton about the country. I kind of like did sort of a, a quick cram session before I got there, uh, and kind of learned a lot about sort of the politics and, um, some social and civil unrest in the country. And, you know, they were under effectively military rule for a long time and had put this, this, you know, this peace, peace political dissident under house arrest. So all of that was like, was fascinating to me because I, I, that's effectively, I, I, I loved, you know, politics and, in kind of society and cultures, but I hadn't really been exposed to it. And so, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to answer your question, I, I think it, it kind of awakened a bunch of, um, I don't know, just a bunch of senses and like how you tune into people. And, you know, I, I, I lived in Korea for a while. I lived in uh, Japan for a number of years. And so a lot of that was Asia. But by the way, the, one of the benefits of, of, of playing piano is like you would have these, these gigs that would be like six months or a year, you know, they were in these sort of quantifiable increments. And then the next one typically was like three months away, right? So it was like, hey, your next gig is in three months. So and you would have breaks? I would have like a three month break where basically I just, I backpacked like a madman. I was, I was all over. And that also like when you do that, especially, you know, in, in places where um, English isn't spoken comfortably, uh, you, I think you sort of tune into, into a lot of senses about how to, how to, how to, you know, how to communicate with people and, and, and listen to people and experience people and sense people. And, and you know, I think as a, as a traveler, I don't feel nomadic, but I definitely, you know, I definitely am excited by it and comfortable by it. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely something. Hmm. Was that lonely? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, but I remember, like, it was a long time ago, and I remember just being energized by the whole thing because it was you know it was it was uh, every country was different you know you were there I was there I was there long enough where 
you know, you could kind of dabble in the language. I could always like dabble enough to, to you know, like in Burma, um, it's so, at least at the time, it was so uncommon usually to see foreigners, but it was very uncommon to hear a foreigner speak anything. And so like my one little superpower there is I learned enough of the language to like cover all the predictable questions that people would ask. And so I could kind of gather a crowd where I'd get the, where are you from? What are you doing here? How long, are you, how long are you, have you been here? You know, um, uh, you, you know, what's your name? And I could rattle those off to the point where people were kind of mesmerized. You'd gather a little bit of crowd. That was sort of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it's, uh, I compensated for whatever loneliness I felt by just like meeting a ton of people. And you know, kind of experiencing the culture, and, and then, you know, I had music. At first, Jay's funky resume seemed more like a conversation piece than a truly useful asset. Um, the, the funny thing is, I would, I would, get, uh, I would get lots of interviews, uh, in part because, like, I had this, this strangely eclectic set of experiences. And, and, and also, you know, I, I, was, I typically, like, had a bunch of people that, I'd get interviews for these crazy jobs that I would pl- apply for and that I'd recognize, you know, I'd, I'd realize finally that the person that was interviewing me was kind of a, uh, you know, dabbled in music and had always <laughs> been curious about playing over, overseas. So it was like... So they just wanted to talk to you. Yeah, tell me what that was like. But, you know, but it was, you know, I think the experience of being abroad, you know, even though I was not really applying for jobs that needed international experience, it... It was just kind of a really unique, wide perspective, and, and I think uh, people appreciated that I was someone that had, had kind of done something bold and adventurous and different, mm. and, and that, was, that was what they wanted to explore. So the job you landed was what? Was, so the first job I landed actually was an entry-level sales position at Oracle, mm. and uh, the start date was three weeks away. And I was living in San Francisco, um, and I'd moved into a place with uh, four, with my now wife, uh, and three other so friends So she's from back college. from Japan. So she came back, and uh, three friends from college. And so there are five of us, party of five, um, <laughs> in a house. And I'd, I'd gotten this job. Uh, it took a little while, but I finally got one. And I was a little bit, um, you know, I, w- I wasn't that excited about Oracle, in part because it meant, you know, commuting down to Redwood Shores, and it was this big, massive company. And you know, even though it was a start, uh, I got a toehold, and you know, I was gonna like, I was gonna start climbing up the ladder. It was, uh, I was more interested in maybe something that I felt would would, would be more, based more on on, mer- on meritocracy. Like I had more opportunity to kind of run deep mm. and like wave for the ball, and somebody would actually throw it to me. So anyway, I accepted that job. I was gonna start in three weeks, and the first weekend, uh, I went uh, with a friend. Uh, I went to visit a friend uh, from college in, in Las Vegas in part to kind of celebrate that I got a job and I was like talking with him and you know it was like late night and I just said you know I'm really not excited about this and he's like yeah I could tell <laughs> and then he said you know you should I, I've got this this person that 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 I know uh, who's in tech you should go talk to him and that turned out to be the the founder of this company called Plumtree um, his name's Glenn Kelman I went to talk to him oh Glenn Kelman yeah I, w- I went to talk to him and uh and he said, you know, uh, you shouldn't take a job at Oracle. Like, we're going to actually start kind of like a little inside sales group. You should, you should come work for us. And they were tiny. And uh, so I, like, interviewed with the person that they had. Uh, they had uh, leading sales. And all of a sudden, I, you know, they made me an offer. And it was, like, in the city. It was 
you know, I think they had less than 20 people. It was like 17 people in the company that were just getting started. And that turned out to be, you know, a really serendipitous choice because it was exactly what I needed. It was a company where where they had a ton of growth potential. They grew really quickly. And that company went from like zero to 80 million in three years. And so the opportunity to kind of like go deep or just, it's sort of just kind of be standing there and, and hearing a conversation where people are like, how are we going to do that? And then you could say, I'll give it a shot. Hmm. Um, and that was, that was an incredible opportunity because, you know, two years later, I ended up in London. And in part, I probably ended up in London again because, people, you know, in the company, they were like, man, who, who, could, who could go abroad and kind of kickstart some stuff there? And Jay's lived overseas. Hey, are any interested in going abroad? And so that, I had a ton of, like, really awesome opportunities. And that's the only other company I've worked for, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. So you were at Plumtree for how long? I was at Plumtree from 97 to, uh, to 2008. And uh, in, in 2005, so Plumtree went public in 2002, mm-hmm. got acquired by a company called BEA Systems in 2005. And then I was at BEA for two, a little over two years. And then Oracle acquired BEA in 2008. And I tapped out. I was like, ah, here we go again. It was like, so avoiding Oracle is sort of the story of your career. I'd come full circle. And I was like, you know, I I didn't really want to work for Oracle then. I don't want to work for them now. Um, And that's when I I kind of, I said, I'm ready to go find something new. I'd been at this same thing for a long time. I'm ready to to kind of seek a new adventure. And, uh, you know, I found it lasting. How? Um, so, funny story, uh, I, I knew about them prior because Plumtree had, uh, had, was sort of in the midst of a little bit of an existential crisis in 04 before it got acquired, and we, we kind of plucked a bunch of people and said, we need to reinvent our product strategy, hmm. and remember, Plumtree, Plumtree was a collaboration company, and so I went in to check on that team, kind of thinking about how are we going to re- reinvent collaboration products, and I said, hey, what have you guys come up with? And they're like, nothing, but like, look at the software that we're using to work together to come up with ideas. And that, that was an Elastian product. And I remember thinking, man, that's thick irony. You know, you're trying to come up with better collaboration software using someone else's collaboration software. And so I went and kind of looked at the company and, and kind of ran to the CEO and said, boy, mate, we should try to acquire this company. You know, it's small, it's in Australia. And uh, he said, yeah, go figure it out. And so I, I, I ended up tracking... Um, Mike Kennebrooks, you know, the, the co-founder uh, and co-CEO on the phone. And, you know, they weren't for sale. Like, they had kind of a ton of ambition and a ton of things in front of them. But that was my first connection. And then fast forward four years, and you always, I always heard about Atlassian, mm-hmm. positively from customers and kind of in the market, but hadn't really paid attention. And uh, I, I was going to leave Oracle, and an analyst, uh, you know, technology analyst, knew that I was leaving and uh, sent me the job description for the VP of marketing at Atlassian and said, I love this company, and you should take a strong look at this. They need somebody like you. And I was oh. like, oh, those guys. And, uh, and you know, put my hat in the ring, and, um, yeah, been, been there for eight and a half years now. It's one thing to have done all that crazy traveling and risk-taking yourself, but what would he advise his own daughter to do? So just to wrap up, You've got your oldest daughters getting ready in a couple of years to go to high school. Oh, man. So, yeah, sorry to bum you out, Dad. But <laughs> it's, it's time for big decisions, for life decisions. More focus happens in the teen years, uh, as we know. What kind of advice are you going to give? To her? Yeah. 
the advice I do give her is uh, keep an open mind. And I also uh, probably give the same advice to her that my mom gave me, which is just try things. Like, try as many things as you can. And but don't quit them. They don't quit them. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, th I think because it's easy to basically, like, you know, try something and, and, and quit it before you actually discover whether or not you like it or you're good at it. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm the beneficiary of that. Like, piano is an example. Like, had I been able to quit two weeks in, uh, I'd kind of be robbed of something that, that is, is a really important part of who I am and opened up huge life opportunities, right? And so it's, it's like you don't want to, you want, you want to stick with something long enough to where you know, okay, this isn't, this isn't for me. Like, you know, not everybody is going to enjoy music. Um, and, uh, you know, it might be two weeks is like a little bit, a little bit not long enough to discover whether or not you could. Um, and so I, and it's a combination of that. And then, um, you know, I, I, I think I also encourage her to, to like, you know, technology has been a big part of my life. It's a big part of, of like everybody's life. But, you know, I want her to, to have a kind of a deep appreciation for it, um, both for what it can do and then also how to disconnect and detach from it. And that's, that's sort of like what's on my mind right now. Like, you know, uh, our mobile phones and our computers and everything is all consuming. And uh, I, think, I think it's virtuous to, it's hard, but it's virtuous to understand how to wind that back. Uh, and and to, to build that early, it, I think is, is important now, uh, especially for young people. Like, you know, we, you and I had a, had a time where we, we didn't have that. So I think we can kind of remember it and we can appreciate that. Um, Really young people today don't. My thanks to Sanjay Poonin, Chief Operating Officer at VMware, and Jay Simons, President at Atlassian. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on iTunes, Apple's podcast app, and wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out Fort Knox Live also on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 Pacific. I tackle the biggest business and economic issues of the week with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. And don't miss next week's podcast. A fascinating person from a fascinating organization, Diana Aviv from Feeding America. She's the CEO and the organization is the backbone of the nation's food banks. I got more than I bargained for in this interview. Find out what happens when off-the-charts emotional intelligence meets crisis leadership. It's a special Christmas podcast. And uh, while you're at it, share this, Fort Knox. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.